All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this section, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 40. But before we jump into that, just a quick little update. Uh, I am working on creating a study hub to go along with the commentaries on the listener's commentary, a place where there's pictures and background descriptions and uh, extra documents and charts and uh, book Uh, recommendations and links to other resources, whether by me or other people that I think would be helpful, just to build that out so that you could use this resource to really help you study the scriptures. So I'm hoping to have that released maybe in a month or so from now. And so if you're interested in that, uh, then I would encourage you to swing over to the listenerscommentary.com, put your name on the email list, or if you're listening after it's already set up, just go check out the hub there at the Listener's Commentary and see if that's something that would be helpful to you. All right, let's jump into Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 40. We pick up in this section right at the tail end of the parable from the preceding section. There, Jesus told a parable that was a direct warning and challenge to the Jewish leadership. It uses the well-known imagery for Israel of a vineyard with an owner representing God. And through that parable, Jesus portrays the Jewish leadership as greedy and self-serving and even turning violent as tenant farmers who refuse to honor the owner of the vineyard and they eventually kill the owner's son, so that they can seize the vineyard for themselves. Well, both the people who Jesus told the parable to and the leaders who are listening in on him telling the parable, they got the point of the parable, and the leaders weren't too thrilled about it. And so here we pick up with their response and then what happens coming out of that. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and yet they feared the people, for they were aware that he had spoken this parable against them. And so they know that ultimately the parable was targeted at them, and they want to get rid of him for it. Verse 20, and so they watched him closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could hand him over to the jurisdiction and the authority of the governor. Notice really the duplicity and underhandedness. They are pretending to be righteous, to be above board and honest and good-hearted, and yet really they, they are trying to trap him and trick him with the hope that they could arrest him and hand him over to the governor. And the reason they have to hand him over to the governor, who's Pontius Pilate, um, is because only the Romans had the, they were the ones that were truly in charge and they alone had the, the authority of capital punishment. And so if they want to execute him, not just as mob violence, but, but do it through the legal means, they had to hand him over to Pilate, the governor. So this is the reason for the kinds of questions that they ask that show up in the ensuing section. Let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse 21, and the spies that they sent to him questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you're not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God on the basis of truth. Remember, they're pretending to be righteous. They're pretending to be honest and good hearted, but their goal is to trick and trap him. So this is empty flattery. That's what that is there in verse 21. Here's their question. Verse 22, is it permissible for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this refers specifically to the poll tax, which was paid directly to the Romans 
and it was a hot-button issue in Jesus' day. It grows out of the political situation. Could one pay taxes to Rome without dishonoring God? That's kind of the underlying religious, theological, political tension in this question and in this issue in Jesus' day. Or was the very task of paying taxes to support Roman occupation, Roman military, Roman idolatry, with coins bearing Caesar's image and proclaiming Caesar is the son of God, was that, if we use that money to pay those taxes, wasn't that in and of itself disloyal to Yahweh? So here's the tension. This is what's being gotten at by the simple question. So when they ask, is it permissible for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There's a world underneath that question, a political world, a social world, a religious world, a cultural world that lies behind it. And this was a very hot button issue. So their trick question seems to put Jesus in a difficult spot. Is he a revolutionary who incites rebellion against Rome? Everyone hated Rome. So if Jesus doesn't speak against Rome, then that would make him be disliked by the crowd. So how will he get out of this one? Either inciting rebellion against Rome and thus Rome should get rid of him or supporting Rome and thus disliked by the crowds. And it seems to put Jesus in a difficult spot. Here's how Jesus deals with it. Verse 23, but he, Jesus, saw through their trickery and he said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have? So he asked him to pull out a denarius, the Roman denarius with which you would pay this poll tax. Um, it was essentially a denarius was about one day's wage. It was minted and coined by Rome. So whose image and inscription does it have on it? They answer Caesar's. The denarius will have Caesar's face on it, Caesar's image. So Jesus knows their game. So he doesn't give them anything they could actually accuse him on and hand him over to the Roman governor. It's amazing how uh, intuitive and sharp and insightful Jesus' responses. In fact, what Jesus actually does is he puts them on the defensive and in a comp- compromising position right from the start. Show me a denarius, which they then have to produce. Such coins at this time period had the image of Tiberius Caesar on them and the blasphemous inscription about him being the son of God, which means, oh, so you happen to have one of those despicable Roman coins on you, do you? And so when they produce a denarius and hold it up, they're already kind of compromised their their credibility for their question anyhow. And then he makes them verbally acknowledge whose image is on the coin, Caesar's. And then he ends with a challenge. Look at verse 25, where he says to them, well, then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The word pay is literally give back. In other words, give that stuff back to where it came from. Give that stuff back to Caesar's. Why carry Caesar's image and coins in your pockets? Like, give it back to him. It belongs to him anyhow. What's more, give back to God the things that are God's, the temple, the authority that you've been given in the temple, the power, the wealth, your very self, because you bear God's image, right? Like in the preceding parable, the vine growers wanted the vineyard for themselves. Uh, and thus they didn't want to honor the owner. Well, Jesus understands what's really going on here. So he calls them out and he tells them to quit taking for themselves that which actually belongs to God. You give to back to Caesar's 
what belongs to him. His stuff is his stuff. If it's got his picture on it, then it's his. Give it back to him. But you give back to God the things that belong to him, yourself, and everything else that he's entrusted to you. And they're amazed, verse 26. They were unable to catch him in a statement in the presence of the people. And so Jesus doesn't look bad before the people. He doesn't uh, sound like a revolutionary who's going to need to be you know, taken uh, to the Romans. So they couldn't catch him in a statement in the presence of the people. And they were amazed at his answer. And they said nothing. Jesus left them speechless. Uh, before we go on to the next uh, question from other spies. Just a couple reflections on this little bit. And that's this. This passage, this text, has been often taken to affirm the validity of paying taxes. And I suppose in one sense it does that. But it doesn't do it by saying that Caesar is legitimate or his coinage is legitimate. It actually affirms the very limited scope and scale of Caesar's rule. Only give back to Caesar what belongs to him, what has his image on it. The apostles, uh, later, when they're writing to newly formed churches, they affirmed that governing authority was delegated from God, and in that sense, it deserves honor, respect, and prayer. And following Jesus' lead, they would say that if that involves paying taxes, then do it. But they, they also said, and Jesus says here, God's reign and God's authority is supreme. It's over all. And God's claim is far more reaching. So give to God everything that belongs to him, which is actually everything, especially yourself, since you're marked with God's stamp, God's image. So give God everything and do what you have to do before the government. All right, now, the questions then to trap Jesus continue. And up next are some Sadducees. And if you listen to the recording on the background to the Gospels, you know that the Sadducees were a group of wealthy priests. They only viewed the first five books of the Hebrew Bible as scripture, and as a result, they rejected the novel idea in their mind uh, of the resurrection that the Pharisees had. So as they saw it, that was a novel idea. And so these Sadducees here come to Jesus and pose a scenario to him it's sort of like a story question that they think shows how silly and illogical the whole idea of resurrection is. Here's what happens. Verse 27. Now, some of the Sadducees, who maintain that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife, and he is childless, that his brother is to marry the wife and to raise up children for his brother. This scenario that they're going to pose here is based on the law of Leviterate marriage. Uh, Leviterate marriage, you can find that in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And the purpose in the Old Testament was to preserve the brother's line and protect the family land. Both were important. And so the whole goal of this practice was really to honor the wife, to honor the family, to protect the, the, the brother's line and his land. It also protected the woman from becoming destitute and thus defenseless. And so in view of that, in view of that practice, here's the hypothetical situation these Sadducees pose. Verse 29. So then, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second... And the third married her, and in the same way, all seven. 
and they all died leaving no children. Finally, the woman herself died. Therefore, in the resurrection, which one's wife does the woman become? For all seven married her. Now, in their mind, this just shows how silly and illogical the resurrection is. In the resurrection, they ask, whose wife does she become? And when they say in the resurrection, what they mean is on the earth, after the time of resurrection, which those Pharisees propose, right? Like, who does she belong to? Well, Jesus answers, and his answer has two parts. Part one, there's no marriage in the resurrection. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and their women are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot even die anymore for they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus says their premise is flawed. They assume that life in the resurrection will be exactly the same as life in the here and now, and that means it will include marriage, but it won't. Marriage, Jesus says, will not be extended into that age, nor will there be new marriages there. There won't be, people don't marry, they're not going to be given in marriage. So no new marriages um, and marriages don't extend into that age. It's a totally different kind of life with a totally different physical nature in a totally different kind of physical world. In fact, people don't even die anymore, he says. So things are totally different there. Um, And thus, There's not going to be the need for marriage there, and so there won't be any. A couple other little notes out of the section we just read uh, are worth mentioning as well. Notice that Jesus implies that not everyone will be in the resurrection, meaning not every Jew, right? Like not all of these seven brothers. He says here that uh, for those who are worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection. And so don't just assume that because there were seven Jewish brothers, all seven are going to be in the resurrection. They may not make it. You're, you don't just automatically end up there because you're a Jew or anything else, right? Like not everyone will be there in the resurrection, only those who are counted worthy. Uh, and so you can't assume even that you would be there, O Sadducee. You may not make it there, right? So only those who are counted worthy will be there. Another little note, just for clarification, he, notice he doesn't say people become angels. He says, for they are like angels and they're like in the specific uh, point of contact. That is, they're like angels in the fact that are, there will be no marriage. So angels don't marry and in the resurrection, Res- resurrected humans won't marry. That's the only way they're like them. It's really important to keep that in mind that we don't uh, succumb to the popular uh, kind of idea that people, when they die, become angels. The Bible never teaches that. Angels are a totally different class of created uh, beings altogether. So, point one Jesus makes is there's no marriage in the resurrection. Now, point two that Jesus makes is even to five books of Moses that you guys see as uh, your only authority and scripture? Well, even those books assume life beyond the grave. Look at verse 37. But as for the fact that the dead are raised, even Moses revealed this in the passage about the burning bush. In other words, he's talking about Exodus chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Um, and so there, in those five books, at 
that, that the Sadducees recognized as authoritative scripture, even there, presumes life beyond the grave. Here's what happens in, in that passage. Uh, so in that passage about the burning bush where he, Moses, calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The point is this. God is still described as their God. Those who no longer exist, should anyone cease to exist, they would have no God. But he, God is still described as their God, meaning they must still exist. They're still alive to him. Jesus isn't saying they've already been raised per se. What he's saying is these are alive in God's presence, awaiting their resurrection. And this is what the Sadducees denied. Um, and thus, this passage implies that if they are present to God, if God is still literally their God, then they must still be alive and thus they must still exist in God's presence awaiting their resurrection. And his answer was convincing, at least to some of them. This is how they responded in verse 39. Some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. And so, in both these little snapshots that Luke has given us, both in the same way, silence, speechless. They don't have any questions more to say. He's answered their questions and they haven't been able to trap him. Now, let me just offer a little reflection at the end of this second section, and that's this. Jesus affirms the belief in the resurrection. Our hope is not bodiless spirit life and some sort of vague, shadowy, cloudy afterlife. Our ultimate hope as followers of Jesus, is the resurrection. Um, and the resurrection includes our own resurrection and the world's resurrection. The world will be made new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which everything works the way it's supposed to again. And we'll be given new bodies fit for that new world and we'll live forever and ever with all of God's faithful ones in God's presence and celebrating his goodness and his glory in a beautiful, restored, perfect earth again. Jesus affirms the resurrection, and that's what we look forward to.